Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We took a little bit of a break from it because we were talking about uh, important th- other important things like the resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrated. We're going to get back into the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the most uh, revolutionary, important, critical message ever delivered by anybody who walked the face of the earth ever. It takes up three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. It's a little over 100 verses. Here's why it's important. I recognize that most of you, if you've ever attended a church before, or church was ever part of your life, or getting teaching was part of your life, you're probably familiar with some of the statements or the lessons that are contained inside of this sermon. I find even uh, those of you who might not consider yourself a Christian or you're of a different faith background, you've probably heard some of the statements from this. Within the Sermon on the Mount is one statement you might have heard before that we sometimes refer to as the golden rule. Have any of you heard of that statement before? Anybody? Paraphrase it for me. What is the golden rule? Do unto others before they do... No. <laughs> right. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, that's in the Sermon on the Mount. There's other statements in there that are familiar to us that we might have heard. And I think one of the disadvantages um, in my life is that I have not looked at the sermon as one big thought. I've usually kind of chunked it up and looked at it independent of itself, like taking a couple sentences out of the middle of a letter without reading the whole letter. And so uh, this time through, as I've been preparing to teach us, uh, you know, I have to be taught first. And so I invite the Holy Spirit uh, just in these seasons when I get to camp out in one part of the Bible for a while, I invite him to teach me. And today, the feeling that I have inside of me, you know, I always have feelings when I come up to talk to people. There's a temperature inside of me. And usually it's mixture of excitement and terror. It's both, you know. And I'm trying to disguise the terror and the anxiousness and the nervousness, and I'm trying to settle in on the excitement. One of those comes from Phil Nauer's flesh, that part of me that gets nervous and anxious and insecure about standing up in front of people, that part of me that has you know, that voice that's always going on inside of your head. You're boring. You're talking too fast. You're talking too slow. You know, you're wearing a vest again. This person fell asleep. That person's downloading, you know, uh, some type of game on their phone over there, you know, the, or, or on Good Friday. Uh, I think the stage is about ready to launch into orbit because the air conditioner is just making these weird noises. And anytime I'm teaching, I'm trying to keep that voice quiet, and I'm trying to lean in and listen to the other one that has been taught by the Holy Spirit, and that is prepared, and that is anointed, and that is called, and that has been gifted, and that has been a given responsibility by God. So I always have those two things. I'm trying to quiet the one and listen into the other, um, to the voice of the Lord inside of me. This week, it's a little bit, um, there's an extra layer of what I'm feeling, um, because uh, I really feel like in this particular section that I've got to study to prepare for you, there's a, a new way of understanding it. I shouldn't say new. I should say a, a probably a deeper, more personal way of understanding what Jesus is talking about here that I haven't had before. So this is not like a refresher for me. There's something very new. And um, Suba and I have conversations on Thursdays via Zoom. Um, she asked me to just, hey, I want to develop my teaching gift. Can I just, can you mentor me in this area? And I'm thinking, well, 
well, I'll do my best. I don't know who's ever really asked me that in those terms before, but I'll try. And so we just spend an hour every Thursday talking through teaching the Bible and preparing. And, you know, we teach uh, on Wednesday night. She takes, you know, we alternate teaching our Bible studies on Wednesday. And one of the things um, she was talking to me about this last week, I asked her, I said, you know, compare your confidence in using your teaching gift today to where you felt like you started off seven to eight months ago when you just started teaching people. And one of the things she said is, I recognize it's much easier for me now as I'm teaching to also hear the voice of the Holy Spirit talking to me and in me and helping me along while I'm teaching and not just being so focused on, here's my notes, here's my outline, here's the information I need to cover. And I, I so appreciated hearing that. She's like, well, how do you, you seem, she's like, from where I sit and I listen to you teach, she's like, it seems like that's just so natural for you. And I say, sometimes it is. And the times where it's natural for me is when I feel like I have already, like, eaten this text and I've digested it and it's part of me now and I'm speaking out of like I have really owned this I really believe this it has gotten into me and it just tumbles out and you probably talk that way about certain things in your life there's just certain things you're comfortable with you're confident in you have experience in you're excited about it and if you get on that topic you don't need 10 minutes to prepare it just comes out of you with a passion and an enthusiasm then there's other times where I've studied, and in my preparation, God brings something very new to me that I'm still chewing on. And I'm confident in it, and I'm sure that it's true, and it's the word, but I'm still trying to digest this for myself. And so that's a little bit of where I'm at today. Some of my understanding, especially about what Jesus says about salt and light in this little section we're going to study, is still new to me. Um, And it's fresh to me. And it has been so rich. And it's like, I don't want to rush through it myself. I have been daydreaming about what it means. And the net result is that I feel so much more at peace in where I'm at and my Christian journey. Because we're all on a journey. If you're a Christian, and not everybody here is, and not everybody listening to us is, but if you're a Christian, here's something we have in common. We're all on the same journey. And it's a journey of or towards Christ-likeness, every day, every week, every month, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit that lives in you and started living in you the moment he saved you, him, that Holy Spirit, is working in you, he's working in you in this moment right now in all of us that are Christians. Right now, this morning, even as you're listening He's working on you in subtle ways that you can't always feel in real time, but he's working in you. He's subtly purifying the way that you think. He's subtly shaping feelings and emotions and beliefs that you have. hes It's almost like your, your clay, your Play-Doh, that he has in his mind this image, and he's subtly putting his finger, and he's applying pressure, and he's molding and moving and shaping things inside of you. And every moment of every day, the Holy Spirit's main mission is to transform you into being just like Jesus, just like he was when he walked the face of the earth. That's the journey we're all on if we're Christians. And and, and along the way, we learn things that challenge and that shape that. Well, Jesus has this remarkable sermon 
in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7. We've broken it down into a little bit over 100 verses. And within this sermon, he answers questions that there was confusion about then for sure, and there's still confusion about today. But quite candidly, he makes things very, very clear, very simple. There's some themes that are stitched through this whole sermon from the beginning to the end. And so we're trying to look at the sermon in parts and appreciate the part, but also we're trying to find within each part a thread that if we tug on that thread, out pops the lesson that connects the whole thing. It's a great way to read the Bible, too. There's seven or eight meta-narratives. They're like threads that are stitched from Genesis through Exodus all the way to Revelation. And anytime you get into a verse of the Bible, you're like, well, what does this really mean today? You'll find at least one of those threads, and if you tug on it, out pops the lesson for us. And so it's the same in Jesus' sermon. His sermon is basically getting after this. What does it mean to really be a Christian? How do I know if I'm truly saved, if I'm truly a Christian, or if I'm really not a Christian? What should a Christian really, at the end of the day, what should a Christian do? And what should a Christian be? That's the whole point of his whole message. And we should all want to sit up and hear this. Like, if I am thinking about being a Christian... Or if I know I am a Christian, these things are mission critical to understanding what life looks like. And the answer he gives us is actually very satisfying. The answer Jesus gives us in this whole sermon is simply this. Christianity, being a Christian, here's what it means. It means a totally new and different way of living that starts inside and it makes its way outside of you. We just sang about that. Lord, I want to worship you from the inside out. As a result of something that is different inside me, how I think, how I feel, what I know, who I know, what I believe, what I'm deeply convinced of, those things have a way of tumbling tumbling out of you into the way that you live. And this is what Jesus says, Christianity... Totally new and different way of living. It starts inside and it moves outside and it can't just be outside and move inside. That's the whole point of his message. That's the whole point of the sermon. He starts off the sermon with the Beatitudes and we've studied through those. And that part of his sermon starts off by saying, here's what my followers are really like. Here's how you know if you're a true Christian. Another way of saying is, here's what makes Christians different. And that's, One of the two words that have rocked my world and my spiritual journey this year. Two words that I've heard these words before, but they seem to be words that keep coming back to me as I talk with Jesus and as I live life and as I reflect on what I see going on in my life. There's two words. One is Christ-likeness. That's the journey I'm on. That's a journey we're on. I've talked about that a lot. But a word that starts popping up out of this passage is a little more benign and less flashy It's the word different. Now, being called different hasn't always been a compliment for me. I think back to my earlier, I've always been a little awkward socially. Most of you know that. And then when I was younger, I was a little socially awkward or maybe a lot socially awkward. And there were several times when an older person, a grown-up or a teacher would say, now you're, you're different. 
And I don't think they meant that as a compliment. I think we teachers of the Bible have done students of the Bible a bit of a disservice in that many times when we teach, we kind of reduce it down into a formula, and it sounds like this. Here's the standard all Christians should achieve. You should all run a six-minute mile. You should all do 30 sit-ups. You should all do, I, you know, I'm going back to my physical fitness test days in schools. How many of you dreaded those days? Okay, and then there's those of us who are like, I think I can pass them all. I look forward to those days. Like, here's the standard. And so every time we come together for church, you're all going to hang on the pull-up bar, and we can, you know, we're going to see who can do the pull-ups and who can't. How many sit-ups can you do? We, we, we reduce Christianity down to a list of skills and aptitudes and characteristics. And then we say, here's the standard. And every week, what we want you to do is agree with the teacher that we all fall short of the standard and go out and do differently. Now, that's not evil, but how do you end up feeling about your relationship with Jesus over a long period of time You come to the conclusion that I think I'm sure that I'm saved, but I'm sure that I'm rotten and I'm not getting any better. I know I should go invite my neighbor to church this week. And because I'm not inviting them to church, I feel guilty and I feel bad about it. And yet at the same time, I'm too terrified to do it. So I'm going to ignore it until Sunday. And then Sunday, I'm going to be reminded, oh, I didn't go invite them to church this week. And now I'm going to feel worse. And I feel guilty that I'm not doing the things I should be doing. And that guilt cycle is terrible. Christianity is not something you learn. It's not a set of things that you just start doing or else. I love this passage because Jesus makes two statements that I'm sure probably at least half of you have heard before. And they begin with two words. You are. Let's see if you know these statements without me reading them. You are the blank of the earth. Salt, good. Okay. Second one is you are the blank of the world. Light. Have you heard salt and light metaphors from the Bible before? You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. I've heard many sermons on that, and I'm sure they're all true and they're all accurate. I'm not trying to undo any of those. But the least flashy part of this whole thing that's jumping out to me are the boring words, you are. And I'm thinking, well, who is Jesus talking to in Matthew chapter 5? He's talking to two groups of people. He's talking to people who were already his disciples and people, and there's like 12 of them, and then he's talking to maybe one or 200 other people who were interested in being his disciples. And he says to them, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Now, here's what he could have said. You're not the salt of the world yet, but if you learn these things, you can become salty. He doesn't say, listen, I need some lights. This world is a dark place. It has no lights of its own, and I want to light this place up. I see some good potential lamps here in the room. So starting tomorrow, we're going to have light 101 courses, 
I'm going to teach all of you how to shine. And if you can go out and love perfectly and be perfectly gracious and merciful and compassionate and you can learn to do miracles and you can present the gospel and your story in three minutes with an invitation and a prayer, you will pass course 101, you'll move to 201. And when you finally get to 301, we will print a certificate out that we downloaded from Google. You can hang it in your office and then you can be a light. He doesn't say any of that, does he? Here's what he says. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's almost as though he's saying, if you are one of these beatitude people I talked about earlier, if you have truly experienced new life in God through Jesus, then as a result of that experience, you are salt. As a result of that, you are light. He doesn't say, go out and become salt. He says, you are salt. Remain salty. And I know you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound good today. Well, work with me. We'll get there. You are light. Don't stop shining. Make this extreme uh, illustration and then we'll get into the text. This might help. Understanding this text, I'm going to give you a bridge to get there. Once I digest this, I can see this much more efficiently, but I'm so concerned that maybe a light bulb goes on for you like it has for me this week about what this means, about who I already am and where I am in Jesus and, and all of this stuff. There's a big difference between saying, you're pregnant and saying, go live pregnantly. Do you feel the jarring disconnect of those two statements? Everybody in this room to some degree, and don't worry, I will not push this analogy too far. Everybody in this room to some degree could respond if they so chose to my instruction, I want you all to go out today and live pregnantly. There's a certain way you could educate yourself, whether you're male or female, about what it means to be pregnant with another life. And to some degree, you could adapt or adopt some of those behaviors and characteristics in your life. Some of you might decide to alter your appearance or strap pillows around your tummy. Some of you might decide to, you know, change the center of your gravity. Some of you might make yourself nauseous 14 times a day develop a version. There's all kinds of different things that you might do physically or maybe, you know, some well-intended men in their lives have tried to bond with, you know, their partner by taking some sympathy or empathetic steps of pregnancy. But you understand how ridiculous it is for me to suggest that it's the same thing that if you go live pregnantly to suggest that if you live pregnantly, if you live pregnantly, then you'll be pregnant. This is not a class on how to become pregnant. Hopefully, seventh grade has prepared you well for those conversations. That's not my role this morning. But you do understand it's a whole different situation when the doctor confirms to a woman that she is, in fact, 
pregnant. What's the biggest difference between those two, between living pregnantly, pregnantly, and being pregnant, is what happens inside of you. That's the difference. I don't want you to spend another moment of your life living Christianly. Because that's going to take you to a no-win situation. First of all, it's going to be stressful. You're not going to enjoy it. It's going to feel like pressure and a burden and performance. And you will never make your own standards. And if you do achieve your own standards, they're probably too low. Or it's going to make you feel prideful. It's going to put upon you a different weight. And it's just going to be a bunch of external things that you do. Everything that we talk about that makes a Christian different. Well, we love differently. We, we, we have compassion. We are merciful. We go to church. We worship. People who aren't Christians can do all of those things. What differentiates a Christian? Right? What I don't want you to do is spend another day of your life trying to live the Christian life. I don't, I'm, my, my goal today is not to say, here's all the ways you can see how you are failing to be salt. So go out there and act differently. Here's the way as you're failing to be a light. So go out there and be a better light. Shine more brightly. What I want to say to you is if you're saved, you're already different. If you're saved, you're shining. If you're saved, you are preserving and seasoning. Jesus is trying to get after in this Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Christianity is, and here is how Christians are different from people who aren't. And he's rolled that out for us in the Beatitudes. And what, what did we learn? Christians aren't different because of what we do or what position we have, or what possessions we have or don't have. What makes Christians different is because of something that you know, something that you believe, something you've grabbed onto that has changed you internally. And as a result of that, you live differently. You think differently. You relate to God differently than someone who hasn't been saved through faith. By Jesus' grace. You think about yourself differently. You think about others differently. You prioritize differently. You behave differently. You give differently. You work differently than those who don't know God as you do. How many of you have recognized even in a small way that your life has changed after Jesus saved you. Okay. Here's my follow-up question. Where did you learn to make those changes? What class did you go to? What course did you have to run through? Don't you think it might be true that the differences in your life 
weren't necessarily all by themselves something you learned and then willed yourself into do, but you recognized something changing on the inside of you. And you listened to that. You leaned into that. You embraced that. You quieted down the you and you let that other voice start shaping the way you think. And out of that, you live differently. If we could slow that all down, doesn't that sound kind of like what happened? And the Bible, obviously, is our foundation. It directs us, it guides us, it teaches us, it illustrates those things. It's not that teaching has no bearing here, but I can't teach you to be a Christian any more than I can teach you to go, be, go live pregnantly. If nothing changes on the inside, all you can do is adopt a series of behaviors, and that doesn't save you, because that's what the Pharisees thought they could do. They thought, if I just keep all the rules, I'll be entered into the kingdom. And Jesus says, even if you keep all the rules and nothing is birthed inside of you, if you're not born again, nothing's really changed. And so what I love about this part of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus connects all these thoughts. He says, he starts off by saying, blessed are the, blessed are, and isn't it funny? He doesn't say, blessed are, he doesn't say, you'll be blessed if you learn how to be poor in spirit. He says, you are blessed when. He says, the people who are Christians are people who recognize that, you, that you're broken, that you're imperfect, that you're not, that, that you can't fix yourself, that you can't repair yourself. Lost my train of thought. I'll get it back. It's coming. Sometimes the train moves slow. Sometimes it moves fast. It moves really fast today. It is gone. Let me read this passage to you. Let me read this passage to you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. You know, I talk about all those different things that go on inside of your head where you're trying to pre. It's just one of those things. Or one of those things. I just got to quiet it down. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Jesus, help me to focus on you this morning and to keep all those other things quiet. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? How many of you like riddles? That's a good one. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Jesus didn't intend there to be an answer for this. Nor is he trying to teach chemistry because I know some of the chemistry people in the room were like, well, sodium chloride is a stable substance and it can't lose it. Yes, we got you. Okay, he's not trying to teach chemistry. He is trying to make a different point. Salt is different from everything else that's not salt. That's what differentiates it from other things. Is it salt-like qualities? What he's saying is, for salt to be useful to anything that's not salt, it has to maintain its unique saltiness. Otherwise, it's nothing more than powder. That has no benefit to everything else. And Jesus is bridging the Beatitudes with his talk about salt and light here. Because here's what Jesus assumes. Here's what he knows. Tell me if this has been true in your own life, those of you who are believers. Tell me if this sounds true. Jesus in the Beatitudes describes the journey of Christlikeness that all Christians experience, and that's what makes us authentically Christians. We recognize that we're poor in spirit. We can't fix ourselves. We're broken. We're sinful. We're flawed. And then we grieve over that. Because there's lots of people in the world who say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but that doesn't bother me. I'm okay with it. I've come to terms with that. They've tried to find an alternate pathway to feeling right. 
A Christian is someone who says, yeah, I, I recognize I'm broken and I mourn and I grieve over it because I'm not in right relationship with God. And a Christian has come to God through Jesus and has received forgiveness and restoration and healing in a new life, which develops in us a new meekness, which allows us to come to healthy terms with our past sins and walk with a gracious life towards other people who are no better than we are no worse than we are, that are just as broken as we are. He describes the Christian life as someone who, who after you receive forgiveness and you start walking and living in meekness, you recognize a new hunger and a thirst to be right that wasn't there before. You, you are discontent by still seeing anything in your life that's impure, and you say, I know that I'm saved, but I'm so hungry and thirsty for the day when all those impurities will be wrung out of me forever. It results in that you become more interested in making peace between yourself and God, and between others and God, and and within mankind. It it, it differentiates in the way that you relate to other people, but he also ends the Beatitudes by saying, if you're on a journey of Christ-likeness, not everyone will respond to the differences in your life favorably. I wonder if you have had an experience in your life where your Christian differences... came into contact with someone who has a different value system than yours. And that which makes you different as it was just lived out in your life as you went about your day was responded to unfavorably. Have you ever had that experience? The first time you had to walk away from a conversation about your boss that was gossipy and negative and you had to separate yourself and you paid a consequence socially for that? when you spoke up about a wrong that was being done because it was wrong, where you tried to intervene in a situation where there was discord and you tried to bring peace and everything got turned against you? How does that feel when you have those experiences where you are treated unfavorably because of the Christian difference in your life? Does not feel good. Does not feel exciting. And Jesus anticipated that some of us as Christians, when we're letting our light shine and when we're being the salt of the earth, we may experience unfavorable treatment because of that. And as a result, we might retreat. It doesn't mean that we might just renounce Jesus, but we just say, you know what, I'm just going to turn that dial from nine down to one, and I'm not... I'm going to actively disguise my differences so that it doesn't invite unfavorable treatment. And it's almost like Jesus anticipates that on that last beatitude where he says, blessed are you when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because that's the same way they treated the prophets. And it's almost like he's thinking, I know you all well enough. In fact, he knows Peter well enough. When you get a little unfavorable treatment, you're going to deny me three times. But Jesus doubles down and says, but don't retreat. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. But if the salt loses its saltiness, if the salt disguises what makes it salt, it's no longer good for anything. 
except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And some of you see, say, see, this verse is about backsliding. Jesus is saying that if you start off as a Christian that has a lot of salty quality to you and you lose your saltiness, he's going to throw you out and trample you underfoot. He's talking about salt, not backsliding here. He's asking a question. He's using a metaphor, and we might push that metaphor too far. It's supposed to have no answer. Salt doesn't lose its saltiness. He's not trying to teach chemistry. He's trying to make an extreme point that the differences that are birthed inside of us the moment we're saved bring with them a responsibility. Christians have a responsibility because we're different. We have a responsibility to be salt and to be light. And the responsibility of salt might be different in your ears than what it was in their ears. I am just going to, I can't, you know what, I'm going to use a different analogy. (laughs) I'm not going to use that one. Um, I'll tweak it this way. Back in that day, um, they also liked to eat protein like we do today. They had a limitation, though. They couldn't let their protein sit around for too long. I mean, they enjoyed a good steak just like a lot of us do. They couldn't let it sit. You know, you know what their big disadvantage was? They did not have access to what that you probably have. Refrigeration. And I don't want to draw this out too much, but you can just kind of play. There's a reason why you don't go to Wise Supermarket and grab some burgers and leave them on the counter till next Thursday. Because the moment, the moment that type of protein is cut off from the living animal, it's on a process of decay and rotting. Now, back in the day, they still enjoyed that in their diet, but they didn't have refrigeration. You know what they did? They packed everything in salt. So here's the point Jesus is making in the limited time that I have. He knows that they'll get this. And in fact, he also knows this metaphor is perfect because no matter how rich or poor you are, everybody needed salt and had access to it, and everybody needed light and had access to it. So do we. Here's what he's saying. Salt's job in their world was to hinder the decay of something that was naturally on a process of rotting unless and until some outside source came in contact with it and slowed that rotting process down. Here's what Jesus is telling us. Our world is rotting away. It is decaying. Our world, the physical world, and every human being in this world, unless the grace of God, unless Jesus through his grace, unless we turn to him, confess our sins, confess our faith in Jesus, unless that, we're headed for permanent separation from Jesus. That's the direction we're headed. We're headed to destruction. We're in the process of decay. And Jesus says, that's unstomachable to me. I want to preserve that which is rotting for redemption. I'm 
He's in the process of getting ready to do his part, but he's saying, you are like salt. You are salt in that we followers of Jesus are to hinder the rate at which the world is decaying so that there is an opportunity for preservation. That's what we're supposed to be like. And he makes a good point. If you are no different than the person who has not been saved, you do them no benefit. You can go rub white powder on all your steaks, they're going to rot and decay. Unless they're really salt and the salt maintains its difference, it's no good. And the salt in the jar on the counter does no good to the meat on the counter. They have to be in contact. So what is Jesus saying? Salt is, how are we salt? Be different, but be engaged and remain different. You're different. You're already different. You know God differently. You know yourself differently. You look at your future differently. You prioritize differently. You love differently. I don't know that I love differently. I fail. Listen, haven't you ever felt love growing in your heart for somebody where previously there was none? Where did that come from? I'll tell you where it didn't come from, your flesh. I don't need God's help to love the people who do me right. That's easy. I need God's help to love the people that don't, that mock me, that tear me down, that spread lies about me, that sabotage my ministry, that treat my family poorly, that talk about me behind my back and think I don't find out. I need help to love them. That is not natural. I do pray for them. Pray for your enemies. Got it. God, get them. Get them now. Get them good. And by sundown tomorrow, or I'm going to get them. And you know what I find when I start praying? Lord, okay, don't get them yet. Spare them. Teach them. Bless them. Oh, pastor, you just think, listen, those prayers do not come out easily, and I don't always really fully mean them when they come out, but if I'm going to be somebody I'm not, I'm going to be the person that I'm supposed to be becoming. Jesus, this doesn't even feel right, but I know this is the right thing to do. I pray for them. Well, sometimes after the first week or the second week or the third week, what happens after time is after a while, I see a little tiny little itty bitty flower come up through the soil that says, you know what, I, I might be starting to care about them a little bit differently. I can't benefit the dark, decaying world by disguising the light and salt of Christ in me. I do the world no good. All that I'm preserving is myself because there's many of us who care more about the relational cost than we do about their soul. We care more about, man, if I, if I don't turn down the salt and the light within me in these circles, if I don't put it under a bowl somehow, if I don't dial it back, people are going to get upset. I might, even if I don't lose some friendships, I might not be as included socially as I once was in some of these things. So I'm kind of there undercover. No, 
nor are you supposed to take the salt shaker and jam it down people's throat. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, he's not saying go out and turn your light up to 20. He's saying you already shine. Just don't put a shade on it. Just don't feel like you have to disguise it. He's not saying go out and take your deer spotlight and put it up in someone's eyes so you blind them until they repent. Neither is he saying, though, hey, be aware that when you're around some other people that might be hostile, that you turn it down to one and you go undercover and you throw people off the trail and you actively disguise it. You deceive, you throw people off the trail. You're the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, How can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town that's built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. The lamp that God lit in you at the moment of your salvation You might have heard it taught, listen, being a light means knocking on every door, ending every conversation at McDonald's with the salvation invitation, you know, forcing the Romans road. That's That's not what that means. What he's saying is, your light already shines, but it's not perfect. Of course not. You're on a journey. But if you've recognized love growing up in your heart for someone where previously there was none, that's salt. And that's light. If you recognize inside yourself a discontentment with allowing any type of sin coming out of your life and you're fighting every day through the Holy Spirit for him to make you pure and bring that under control, that is salt and that is light. And that is getting out of you and it's impacting the people around you. Even The fact that you're trying to live a more Christ-like life around other people is light. It is salt. They're benefiting from it, even if they don't recognize it right away. They are benefiting from you being Christ like them, but it might not always draw out their favor. You have to be careful who you celebrate your weight loss wins around. Because some people here say, man, I lost 10 pounds. They're inspired and they're happy for you. And other people are angry at you. Why? Could be any number of things. Could be jealousy. You could be exacerbating negative feelings they already have about themselves. And now they're mad at you because your win sheds a light on something that's broken in their own heart and the way they think about themselves and the only way they need the only thing they need to do is re- is react in anger and cut off the messenger not every bright salty christian like change in your life not, people aren't always going to be excited about that some might be inspired by it i told you about my friend rob i've told you about my friend brian neither of them are believers yet but they know that I am. They recognize the differences in my own life. And they're interested and they're curious and they're attracted to that life. To those differences. And there are other people in my circle who, as they start to realize who I am and what I'm about, they don't like it at all and marginalize and distance. 
Why? You'd have to ask each of them individually. But what it usually does is that light shines and illuminates people's vulnerabilities at times. Because they see someone else living a way they think they should be living that they're not living. And when they see that, it's easier for them to cut that person down and marginalize them than to be inspired and say, can you pull me up to that? Neither do people put light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. You see, lights shine and you do shine. And I want you to know that God has put you on a stand intentionally. The people that you know, the routines that you follow. The people you notice, I think they've waited on my table before. I think I've paid this person for my gas before. I think I've bought coffee from this person before. Where your cubicle is. Do people even have cubicles anymore? I don't know. I have to evergreen this message at some point. That's the stand he's given you. We all have different stands. But God didn't mean for us to live in isolation. He meant for us to be engaged with our world while maintaining our differences. And a lot of us as Christians think being engaged with my world needs to be, I need to look more the same as they do. I need to tamp down the things about my life that are different in order to engage. And Jesus says, if you do that, you might engage, but you won't benefit. And the whole point of this section is here's what's different. We've talked about what makes you different. Here's how your differences are beneficial to people who don't know me yet. One, you slow down the rate at which the world decays from descending into chaos. And two, you illuminate the darkness of ignorance, people who don't know what they don't know, of error, people who know, but they're wrong, and they don't know that they're wrong, of vices and habits and sin and selfishness. Light shines into that, and it illuminates. You know, you flip the light on, you see all kinds of things scurrying, and some things run from the light, and other things say, I'm exposed, I'm caught, what do I do? I'll keep going. So they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house, verse 16, because i got to finish up. In the same way, let your light shine before others. What does that mean? Let your light shine before others. What is my light? Well, it's Jesus. Okay, be more specific. It's not like you open a little door to your heart and this little character pops out with a beard and a robe and you should, no. The light is the different life you live. It's everything you say and everything you do. That's your light. That's what it is. That's what he says, your deeds. Let everything you say and everything you do be publicly seen. Does that mean I have to, no, no, no. Maybe say it this way. In the same way, don't disguise or cover up the different life that you live so that others can see your life and think better of you. Uh, No, that's not what it says. Well, pastor, I don't want to be prideful. It's not talking about pride. It's talking about setting someone else to get the shine. Let people see the different life you live so they can see your life as an arrow that points them to your father. My favorite conversations are when my buddy Rob will say, you know, he'll, he'll let a, a four-letter word fly around me and he'll apologize to me. Love that. 
I'm like, why are you apologizing to me? Oh, I, I just, I know what you believe, and I shouldn't say those things. And I go, well, what bothers you about saying those words? Now we're getting somewhere. Because what, what comes out is, well, I know that it's not right, but I can't help myself, and I've kind of given up trying, and I feel worse when I do. Well, why do you feel worse? Where'd that come from? Are you going to start preaching to me? Only if you ask me to. <laughs> well, I don't hear you swear. Well, you should have been around me t- 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Why not? What if you said, heck yeah, that's funny. (laughs) On a lot of different levels. That's the sound of someone who's recovering from. (laughs) That's good. I love that. You should have been around. And you know what it does? It opens up an opportunity for me to say, I didn't go to some mastering your vocabulary class. Because you could go to that. And you know what? You'd learn techniques to deal with language that you can overcome by will and discipline. The easier thing for me was someone went in and gave me a new operating system. And that one didn't have that vocabulary populated. And I just had to learn how to listen to that one and shut the other one down. Do not think that I've come to, a, here now he's going to define his mission. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18. I truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I can give you 15 seconds of a two-part message right here. Jesus is anticipating, though he hasn't been put on the spot yet, that some people are going to misunderstand his whole MO. He's anticipating that some people, especially teachers of the law, people in the know are going to say, this man is anti-Jew. He's an anti-Semite. He's against our law. He's against us. He threatens our constitution and everything we feel is important. And Jesus is saying, let me just be cut right to the chase. The law is good and it's helpful, but it's limited. I've not come to abolish. I've come here to build up. I've not come here to destroy people. I've come here to save people. Second time I come back, different story. But this time, I've actually come to fulfill the law because the law is limited. I'll show you how in just a second. And I've come to actually fulfill everything the law requires us to do to have peace with God that you can't do. I've come to fulfill it and complete it and give you a whole new covenant that's better than this one. Better benefits, better advantage, lower cost to you. I'll take all the cost. So he's just clarifying his mission. End of sermon. 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside any of these commandments, in other words, Jesus is saying, you're probably going to think that I'm going to start telling you certain commandments aren't important. Let me just double down on what I believe about the law. Anybody who sets aside any of these commandments says it's not important, it's optional, and they teach other people to do it, they're going to be called the least in the kingdom. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great. Now watch what he does here. Because if you're a teacher of the law, you're sitting there, that's right. I practice all 607, you know, messianic or uh, rabbinical laws. I practice, you know, Moses is 10 and the other 600 we had. I practice them all. I'm perfect. I'm faultless. He's talking about us. We are great in heaven because we're so righteous. We check off the list. We hear every sermon about what to do and we do it perfectly. And then Jesus ends this section, drops the mic and sets up Pastor James by saying, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So on the one hand, he says, if you practice the law perfectly, you'll be called great. But unless your righteousness is better than the most perfect person you know, your badge won't get you access to heaven. 
That is terrifying if you're in that initial audience. What he's saying is, I'm pro-law. All the rules and regulations, all of them. You can't set aside any of them. It's a good thing to want to practice and obey them. However, that's going to give you with an inaccurate idea of the quality of your righteousness. And the most pure righteousness you can achieve falls short of the access code you'll need to enter the gates of the kingdom of heaven. So they're thinking, Jesus, is there more righteousness? I need to have more than they do in terms of quantity. Jesus, there are like 25 hidden rules we don't know about that with the special code, we can have access to the 25 new rules. And if we follow those 25, we get in the side door. He's not talking about having more righteousness. He's talking about you've got to have a totally different kind of its quality. Because here's what we do. We're taking an impure substance, mixing it with another impure substance, and saying it's going to become pure. Does that ever work? Jesus is saying your righteousness has to be pure. Well, I can't make that even on my best day because I'm not. I'm taking my impure self with my impure motives and thinking that if I just mix them together and bake them, they'll be pure. That doesn't work. You don't take mud and mix it with mud and get, you know, ivory soap. That's 99.9999999.4% pure. You need a different kind of righteousness. And the question they're left with is then who in the world can get into heaven and how? And Jesus says, anyone who has this kind of righteousness can get in. Well, where do I get it? I can't produce it. Jesus says, you can't produce it. I'll do it. And I'll give it to you. And God, when he sees my righteousness on your resume, will give you access based on my righteousness, not yours. New deal. Yay. So what makes a Christian different? I'll give you these five things since I, unfortunately, I told you this is new. I preached the whole message without giving you the five words. So you got the, the meat. Let me just give you the bones, okay? What makes our life different? Here's at least five things Jesus points out. The Christian life is different because of its influence. Now, let me ask you a question. Can someone who's not a Christian have influence? Of course they can. Everybody has a certain degree of influence. What's different about the Christian life is the type of influence we want to have on others and why we want to have it. As salts, my job is to slow the decay of the dying world around me by allowing my differences to shine through in moments where it comes into direct opposition to an opposite value system. Very short story. Three weeks ago, my 11-year-old and I went to a sports memorabilia show and bought a ticket for him to meet one of his favorite football players to get him to sign a football. It's in a convention center, and there's lots of people that bought these tickets, and the room is getting very, very full and very, very hectic, and people are running behind. The signers are running behind on schedule, and you can just kind of feel the anxiety of the crowd when the gates aren't opening on time and people have paid money to get in. I don't do well in those moments. Your boy has social anxiety disorder. I've got, and, I, and my 11-year-old, unfortunately, has gathered some of his dad's traits, and so we're trying to distance ourselves from where the room's getting very population-dense and smelly and a little bit uptight. And so as we back away from the entrance to where we get our autographs, as far back as we could move, there was a whole row of tables that vendors had purchased to display their wares for people to buy. Autographed pictures, autographed footballs, baseballs, hockey sticks, all kinds of stuff. 
that has value. And so my son and I are just trying to get away from the crowd and just not melt down and just be okay, and I'm trying to keep him calm, and we kind of found a little safe orbit here. And there's like another dad over here with his two boys, and I could just kind of look at him until he's dealing with the same thing. We're just trying to prevent meltdown. Well, a few moments later, the, the vendor of the stand behind us comes around, and he was not happy. And he got right up into my son's face and my face. He says, you guys need to move away from my stand. Keep this aisle clear. I've got things here that are valuable. And if you bump into them, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And son, I don't think you have enough money to replace those things. Keep the aisle clear. And he moved us aside. And the same spiel to the next guy and the next guy. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I don't handle that well. Sorry. Um, I don't like that I don't handle it well, but let me tell you, I was instantly ready to spring into action in that moment. I thought this guy needed to know some things that I thought and felt, and I was already on the edge because of my underlying weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and it's just like in that moment, it was just like, all right, all this tension I feel needs an outlet, and I found Target acquired, you know? (laughs) And I had pretty much decided, the one thing that restrained me was like, ooh, Chase is here. He's going to see this. I'm like, well, he's going to see this. You know what I'm just like, because <laughs> I could just see his whole face, and I'm just like, and the next dad over, I could see, he was like turning all kinds of red. I'm like, the next, all right, I've got an ally. There's two of us now. And when he went to the next guy, that dad turned to me, and I'm already like, point me in the right direction. I don't know why I hadn't unloaded yet. I was ready, but... There was part of me, there was this tiny, tiny little part of me that said, just, just hold on. It was very quiet. And the other dad looked at me, and, he, and he, he caught my eye, and he said, hey, let's start, let's just start knocking this stuff down and moving it around. <laughs> you laugh. He was serious, man. He had, like, already turned around, and he was just, like, ready to go, like, he... And I'm thinking, I am so in right now. And I'm all, and then, but then there's this other voice that was like, what are you doing? I'm like, you be, not you right now, you be quiet. And what came up, what came out of my mouth next, I was fully aware of what was coming out of my mouth, but I said, I don't think so. I just said, I, if it was my stuff, I'd, I might feel the same way too. And the dude is looking at me like, you have betrayed me. <laughs> now I can't, I'm not going to, now that I know you've outed yourself, you're not going to. There's part of me that's also like, what did I just say? And the guy just looks at me, he's like, oh, people are just jerks sometimes. And I look back at that moment, and it's not some huge watershed moment of hurt. I mean, if anything, it just shows me how broken I still am. And I don't like that. I, oh, it's embarrassing. I don't like admitting that to you or to anybody else. I don't like that, that those, those feelings were triggered inside of me. And you know what? That's the same condition of every human heart. We are, our hearts are broken. And you can make a pretty good case for saying, but you know what? In the world's view, you would be justified in doing that. He deserved it. Now I have a choice, but I belong to a kingdom where it says you don't get what you deserve. You get grace. 
But I also want to have my foot over here where it says, if you cross me, I'm going to move your stuff. (laughs) And not feel bad about it. Now, I'm thinking now back a little bit. And I didn't recognize this at the time. I really didn't recognize this later. I'm thinking, what if we had decided to start tearing that guy's stand up? What do you think would have happened in that whole room? Total chaos. Rot and decay. Maybe, just maybe, God put a little grain of salt and imperfect, broken, flawed, developing, in-progress grain of salt at that stand that day to slow down the chaos of a world that's broken and rotting. And he did it even in my own brokenness. You are salt. You are different. Being salt is not leaving here today with a laundry list of things you don't rank high in and trying to master these areas of your own deficiencies. It's about just recognizing the light and the salt that came into you in its full form when you were saved and leaning into him and leaning into that and listening to that and just saying okay to the Holy Spirit whenever there's a difference of opinion. That's really what it means to be salt and light. And you know what? You're doing this. You're doing this. You live this way. Many of you do. In that moment, for me, it wasn't that I responded perfectly. I certainly didn't. But in that moment, I did recognize, number one, I'm broken. But number two, something new is in me that wasn't in me before Jesus. So I'm saved and I'm in progress. And I can lean into that difference. Even if I had started, I'd already kind of pot committed to going after the stand. It wasn't too late. Well, I'd already committed Jesus. Sorry, I'm going to have to start, you know, throwing down some of these autographed pictures of dead golfers or, you know, throw them all over the. I don't think so. And what came out of my mouth was grace that wasn't mine. I had no grace for that guy. But what came out, I'm thinking, that was pretty gracious. I'm also thinking, where did that come from? It didn't come from gracious feelings. It came from a gracious person who in that moment I gave him lordship and he allowed me to borrow his grace that I couldn't produce and use it as if it was my very own. That's where you get the love from that's different. You can't produce it. I can't teach you how to love that way. You just have to walk close enough to Jesus that you experience it and you learn to feel it living inside of you and then you just give it away. You don't, pro- you don't make it. You just give it away as if it belonged to you. Influence, man, did I take too long? I'm so sorry. Verse two, or number two, guidance. We're different in our guidance. Can, can someone who's not a Christian be a good guide for people who want to learn something or go somewhere? Of course. The difference is where a Christian is trying to guide someone in darkness towards. Wish I had more time. I don't. You don't wish I had more time. That's good. So number three, intentionality. We're different that way. I love that we see not only does God view us as a light that was lit, but that he had the intention of saying, I'm not just going to leave it here. I'm going to intentionally place my light all over the world in places where I know they need to be seen. There's intention 
behind all of the different. I think there's intention to your address. I think there's intention to the route you drive. I think there's intentions to the places you frequent. I think there's godly intention to all of it. All of those are little stands where he's placing you, his light, and his salt to preserve and to illuminate. Number four, we're difference in our publicity. Wish I had more time. People who don't know Jesus can be all about getting publicity. The difference is that I live a life as a Christian that's not meant to remain in isolation, but it's to make Jesus famous, not me. It's to be an arrow to him, not to me. It's great to have fans, but he needs followers. Number five, Christian life is different because of its righteousness. You probably know a lot of people who have experienced that first beatitude. They recognize they're spiritually bankrupt. They know they're not perfect. They know they're not pure. They know they're not holy. But they've not ever matured into that second one, which says they grieve and they mourn over that. Instead, they found some other way to create a type of righteousness that they can achieve by a certain amount of behavior. One of my buddies, he's a big believer on karma. He's like, that's my, you know, I don't believe in having to go to church and worshiping a God or anything like that. I just believe you treat, <laughs> you treat other people the way you want to be treated and it comes back around to you. I'm like, dude, you didn't come up with that. <laughs> Why? Well, because he believes that in and of himself, he's not good. And if he wants to experience good in his life, he's got to do good and it starts some sort of chain reaction and it comes back to him. He thinks he is righteous because of that. What makes me different from an unbeliever is not, you know, I say I'm righteous and he says he's righteous. Why am I convinced? Because my, I, I'm convinced I'm righteous because I'm using someone else's resume. My righteousness is different because I didn't set into a, I didn't create it by just planting a whole bunch of righteousness seeds and now I, it comes back around to me in karma and this and whatever else he does. My righteousness was received because it couldn't be achieved. It was given to me as a gift from Jesus. But there was a rider attached to that. He said, I'll put on you what I wear, but you have to put on me what you wear. I'll give you righteousness, but you're going to have to give me your version of righteousness and put it on me. It's an exchange. I'll put on you what you could never earn. And I'll take off of you and put on me what you deserve. And the answer to that is that is not fair. Thank God it's not fair. I'm glad to belong to a kingdom that doesn't hold up fairness as his number one value because no one could get in. Because we'd all have to get what we deserve. You are salt. You are light. Friend, you shine. You do. My encouragement to you today is engage the world around you. Lean into the things that make you different and don't feel like you have to dial them back or mute them 
simply because it might result in unfavorable treatment. And don't feel like you're so far away from this. Just lean into the differences of who you are, who you know, what has happened to you, and just say okay to the Holy Spirit when there's a different of opinion about how you should act, and you will be right in the center of God's responsibility that he's given to you to preserve the world that you live in and to illuminate the dark places. Let's pray. Worship team, will you come? This journey begins, like we talked about today, with being saved by Jesus. That simply means that you confess your faith in him. And he forgives you of your sins. And he, through his Holy Spirit, comes and sets up a new life inside of you. You're united together with God through your spirit. And that's where these differences are born. Your life is different. You're a new creation. Maybe that's the step you want to take today. So here's my questions. Do you know that you're a sinner and needing to be saved? Do you believe Jesus can save you? Do you believe Jesus will save you if you, if you ask him? And are you ready to surrender your life to Jesus with him being Lord and you being his follower. If you say yes to those things, if you believe those things, if you're deeply convinced of those things, you are ready. And that's all the Bible lays out that needs to be present in our heart in order to experience salvation through Jesus. And so let me just tell you, all you need to do with that belief is confess it to Jesus and he'll hear you and he'll save you. So take that, what we just described, those things you agree with, those things you believe, just confess that to Jesus right now. If you need a little guidance, it can be a prayer as simple that says, Jesus, I am a sinner. I want to be forgiven by you. I want us to be right. I want us to have a good relationship. I want to know you. God is my father. Jesus, please save me. Forgive me. Change me. Come and live in me. You're my Lord. I am ready to follow you. And that journey begins right now. Amen. And I promise you, sister, brother, if you believe that and you prayed that, he heard you. You are saved. You're back in the family. You're here at the table with brothers and sisters. You're past all the stains and sins of your past. No matter how great they are, they are all forgiven. There is no punishment waiting for you from your father. Jesus took all of that for you. You are salt. You are light. You are different. You know some things now. You're, grab, you're experiencing something now. You are different. Welcome to the family. If- we hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at 
info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.